Welcome to Codex Rex. My name is Dux. And I am Tyler. Today is a very special day because today we have a very special guest. Introducing Lewis Castle, a man with more than 35 years of experience in the video game industry, serving in creative, technical and financial roles. He's been recognized with two Lifetime Achievement Awards and multiple best-in-class product awards for over 150 games, including a BAFTA. Accomplished entrepreneur, art director, technical director that also worked in business development and corporate governance. You're a great public speaker, a former USC adjunct professor of game design, and finally, the main reason why we contacted you, you are the co-founder of Westwood Studios, the studio that is most well known for developing the Command and Conquer series. It is a joy and truly humbling to have you with us today. Welcome. How are you? It's a pleasure to be here. Believe me, it's uh, so great to talk about uh, the Westwood days and and just the industry in general. Usually, Tyler and I, we ask each other what games we play at the time before we start anything. So I'm just going to ask you, are you playing any games at the moment? Are you playing video games? Yeah, I'm I'm playing a couple. Um, One of them is a mobile game, uh, Marvel Strike Force, that came out several years ago. And uh, my son worked on the game, so I became... Um, a daily player of that game, and I'm still a daily player of the game. I I play um, I, I I do a Duolingo, which is an app, but it's really more about just learning other languages. So we travel quite a bit when we can. So I like Duolingo to pick up some words. We were in Kenya, Ooh, nice. so I learned learned some Swahili. Not enough to be conversational, but enough to you know <laughs> sort of at least get by. Um, on PC, I've been playing a lot of shooters. Um, recent Call of Duty. I've been playing. Uh, basically anything I can get my hands on because of the current work I'm doing with uh, deviation games. Uh, so I want to kind of get boned up on first person shooters. Of course, I play the game that we're working on. I do that a lot. Uh, that's where it spends most of my time. I like Starfield quite a bit. I know that that's, um, that's got a kind of mixed uh, reception, but I think it's a, it's a great game. I've loved all the Bethesda games. And so I suppose if you love it, you, if you love that style, you're going to love that game. Um, so quite a few things, Diablo four, um, I've installed Baldur's Gate, but I've only spent a few minutes on it, so I don't really know much about it yet. Oh yeah, but, like, Baldur's Gate is a commitment too. Yeah, it's a commitment. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, I know. I, <laughs> I was a, a dungeon master for many years, and I love the D and D franchise. I mean, we've made several D and D games uh, over the years. So starting with um, kind of, well, it goes all the way back to Hillsfar and Dragon Strike, and I had the Beholder, yeah. I had the Beholder Two. We worked on a lot of the Gold Box games from a technology point of view. So I've been doing a lot of stuff in the D&D franchise in the early days. So it's always fun to go bouncing around in Waters Deep or wherever, in this case, Baldur's Gate. So, yeah. So so does that also kind of mean that um, video game design now runs in the family? It does. Yeah. My my sons both uh, do video games. My eldest uh, was a games producer. He has a degree from USC in oh. games production. Yeah. Uh, great, great program there. I was a professor there, as you mentioned. And uh, but, but he was he had graduated before I was a professor. So, um, but he's he's done some mobile games and he's worked on some of the petroglyph PC games. And then my youngest son James is a accomplished game designer. He got a, a game degree from um, from RIT, uh, also a great program there. And they teach more about game uh, game building, if you will. So it's more, mm-hmm. less about production and more about actually doing it, building games. So he's a solo indie game developer as well. Although he has worked for Amazon Games um, and some other companies over the over the years. So they're both um, accomplished in the industry. And my daughter's works as a, as a, in the 
casino gaming space as a graphic designer. That's amazing. I like the start of a dynasty. <laughs> Maybe so. Yeah. Maybe so. I would, I would love to one day make a game with make a game with my son. So we'll see. One yeah. day that might happen. That's, I'm too busy right now. Um, oh yeah, I can imagine. My, career, so. But that would be really cool. I imagine that would um, be incredible. Yeah. Be I bet the father was a great influence to them. And we always encounter when we kind of research video game developers that there's always something in their childhood that kind of made also turned them into who they are do you do you feel like that there's a memory from your childhood that kind of stirred you into the uh, direction yeah i think well if anything stirred me steered me into game uh, design and making games was the the my passion for creating things art art in particular uh, i loved making artwork when i was a kid that's what, just what i did with all my time even when i was telling stories with the dnd campaigns i used to make like medallions and draw pictures of the characters and all that stuff so i was always I just loved doing artwork and growing up in, in high school in, in Las Vegas, I, I wanted to make some, have some way of making a career out of doing something creative. I was pretty, pretty flexible. I mean, I worked in like my whole career. I've worked on a million different jobs. I was a veterinarian's assistant. I did, you know, painted on windows for Christmas time and stuff and had my own little business doing that, delivered newspapers, um, ultimately ended up working for a computer store. But all of that stuff was just kind of the noise. What what really came down to is for all of high school, I was absolutely certain I was going to be an architect. And uh, the, the idea was learn to be a great draftsman, which which I was quite competent as a draftsman, so that no matter what would happen, I would always have a job as a as a craftsman in the architectural industry and do my throw my hat in the ring to try to be creative enough to create great spaces as architects do. Uh, and I went to a trade show. I, I saw the computers getting introduced into architecture way back in the 80s. And I said, oh, man, this is this is going to change everything. I can't fall back on being a, a draftsman anymore. I'm going to have to learn how to use computers so that I would have relevancy, even if I couldn't make it in the in the very competitive field of architecture. Um, got a scholarship for architecture at ASU, full ride with a job lined up and a, an apprenticeship and all of that. Um, but in the in the meantime, I bought a computer. I got a job at a computer store here locally in Vegas. Met a bunch of folks like David Gardner and, and Rich Hillman and a bunch of others that uh, influenced me quite a bit, I suppose. Uh, and met Brett, and we started just working on games. And I still was looking at architecture. And one day, I I was in my senior year of high school, and I sort of looked up and I said, you know, I I don't think I want to do architecture. I think I want to make games um, because it's a way to do artwork on computers and. As an architect or as any kind of artist, fine artist especially, almost everything you try to do has been done like 20, 30, 50 years before. You think you've got something new and, and all of a sudden you find out it's just been done. You, it's so disheartening as a, as a fine artist. You'll, <laughs> you'll go out and you'll do a painting style. I, used, I did some kind of chromatic uh, characters and, and I thought, oh, that's really cool. And then I found out Sariamo has been doing that for decades. You know, It's like this happens all the time. And uh, and I thought, well, maybe they've done it before, but they haven't done it with computers because that's new, right? So I figured this would be a way for me to do some fine arts. And I was the crazy wild-eyed guy that said, one day there'll be galleries, but there'll be video screens instead of uh, instead of um, you know paintings. And I thought this would just be a great way to to do artwork and make a living. Uh, and I've always loved games. I, I mean, I play video games as well. So that's what kind of led me into it. But I don't think there was any one pivotal moment that. That said, okay, this is this is going to be the career for me. In fact, even as I went into college, I did fine arts and computer science. My dad, I've, I tell the story a couple of times. It's worth hearing again because it's a great story. I, I go to him and I said, I have this free ride scholarship uh, to ASU as an architect, or I could go to put myself through school as a computer game, com, um, computer science and video and, and fine arts. 
And he goes, well, what if you what if you did that architecture thing? Would you still make video games? Like, oh yeah, absolutely. I'd love to do that. That's it's fun. And he goes, well, what if you found out a way to do this games thing and made a living at it? Would you still do architecture? And I go, no, nah, probably not. I mean, if this is what I could do and I could make a living doing it, he goes, well, you know what you want to do. You're asking permission, but you should follow your heart. You should do what, what's going to make you happy. You'll be a much, a much better person for it. And so it was good advice. You know, um, That's really great to have that in your life, that, yeah. that kind so of perspective. That's probably hmm. the pivotal moment if there was one that said, okay, it wasn't just that I had decided to do it. Honestly, I had decided. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> but the, but the, um, the support, uh, this is the same guy who wouldn't buy a computer for me because he said it would be a toy that sits in the closet because I'm, <laughs> I'm super ADHD and I, 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 I flit around to things all the time. So he, he was convinced there was no way I was going to stick with it. But um, but it, but at least at least the you know the the real strong admonition to follow what I want to do. Um, it also I think it informs a lot of uh, how my career uh, progressed because the industry was growing and there was no shortage of jobs to do. And so I just kept moving from one thing to another. Uh, one of the reasons I have so many games to my credit is because when I first started in the industry, I was trying to make a game a month. Uh, and you could do that back then because they were very simple. Um, you know, and um, I, I didn't get a game a month done for sure. It was probably every other month that I got one finished. And and I would upload them to magazines and sometimes they'd get published and sometimes they wouldn't, mostly not. <laughs> but sometimes they would get published. And um, and then worked on a bunch of games after that as both an, as an artist, a technical director, creative director, I drove a lot of games as the principal um, executive producer or game director. Um, that's a much smaller list, um, but includes some very successful titles, you know, including things like um, well, Lands of Lore, Kyrandia, uh, Blade Runner, uh, Monopoly, The Lion King. Uh, so more than a few that are that are well-known games in history. And uh, so I've done a lot of different things from uh, from the arts side, from the technical side. Back in those days, you 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 didn't have tools, so. You, you had to write art tools, you know, there was no mice. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I go way back, guys. <laughs> you know, yeah. people, people said, well, didn't you just draw on a tablet? Like, oh, young Papa, young Padawan. <laughs> How nice it would be to have tablets back then. But no, we had tablets, yeah. tablets of paper, and we would fill in graph paper and convert it to hexadecimal and type it in. And that's how you got graphics. Into Especially the design of the Apple II computer at the time was something oh, yeah. revolutionary, right? It was very, it was very uh, challenging as a, as a, uh, as a platform for the graphics design and the audio design, especially because the the uh, Apple II graphics display really wasn't intended to be used um, for high performance things like video games. It was designed yep. to be like a, a mathematical plotter or charter. And mm -hmm. uh, they infamously saved some computer components, some pennies on some components and created this incredibly difficult to map visual space. So it took, it took a lot of effort just to make something, um, literally, if you tried to move an object across the screen, it would literally change colors as you moved it because the data was represented differently. Yeah, that sounds um, like a nightmare. <laughs> it does. It was. I do have a quick follow-up question in that regard. So we talked a lot on the podcast about how um, in the early days of like video games becoming sort of um, a household thing, uh, people really thought of them as toys. And um, you mentioned your father saying, well, I don't want to get you a computer. It's just a toy that'll sit in the, in the closet. So yeah. uh, I, I was just kind of interested, what was your first computer and what was it like to learn on that? My first computer that I owned was an Apple II. Um, okay. Not an Apple, not an Apple II Plus, an Apple II. Uh, <laughs> but very quickly, I got the job at the computer store, and the Apple, I got the Apple II Plus uh, afterward. After that, 
Um, so that's a 6502-based um, computer. It has a um, MS the Microsoft Basic implementation, which was kind of a licensed version of Basic. Um, and as I said, there was a rather complicated set of graphics libraries that would draw, that would draw lines and stuff from Basic. But you obviously, even with a one megahertz of CPU, you're not you're not moving any graphics around um, in in Basic. You're going to have to be using an assembly language at the very least. And even then, it was very difficult. Um, so that's the first computer I learned to. I owned, but prior to actually owning my Apple II, um, I had played around a little bit with Unix and CPM. Um, so I learned a little bit of a uh, little bit of like scripting languages and things like that. Mostly, mostly piping, data piping. Uh, I started doing some um, computer science stuff, or not really computer science, really architects. Uh, sorry, architects. Sorry, I got that on my head. Uh, 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 accountants and um, and uh, small business owners. They they were looking for. They would have different kinds of software and they would have to convert the data from one element to another. This is back around the days of Lotus 1, 2, 3. Yep. And so I started creating a lot of different tools that could allow you to let applications work on the same data sets or move data sets from application to another application. And that's about that's how I started as a programmer. I started as an artist, though, to, just to go all the way back. Um, even before I owned a computer, one of the guys that came into the computer store when I was still earning my money to get my first computer, he wanted me to do some graphics for um, a, a educational piece of software called Fraction Action by um, Unicorn Software. And so I drew the little animated characters and you know they they animated fairly well because I was going to be an artist and I had done animation, flipbook animation stuff before. So um, they actually moved better than if a programmer tried to do it. And so I kind of started there. Well, I, I remember from interviews that you worked at this texter that you already mentioned, um, like uh, Century 23, What's the Century twenty three like? is the name of the story. Yeah, yeah, so, and um, Nick Reese <laughs> was 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 that like a way people got developers by walking into a tech store and just looking at the people that uh, hung around there? Like, oh, that's interesting. Um, I don't think anybody <laughs> conceived of the industry in that way. I think it was it's a hobbyist store, so it's an electronics store, um, but it was a, a home computer, microcomputers. Um, Nick and Penny were very visionary in their way because they they saw the the future of home computers, the Atari eight hundred, the the 400, the 800, the, um, the Apple and the Commodore. Uh, we sold the Apple II because it was more of the hobbyist computer and you could you could uh, take these um, cards that you would plug in and you could you could do what's called breadboards and you could wire wrap them. So you could actually use your Apple II to control like holiday lights and you know do very modest or rudimentary robotics. Uh, and that just was very different than the architecture of the Commodore. Uh, 64 or the Atari, which were really not hobbyist computers. They were really um, entertainment computers, entertainment devices. Um, you know, Commodore being Commodore business machines, they had their their minis and their mainframes, or not mainframes, but their minis. And then they also had the uh, Commodore 64, which was meant to be a consumer device. Um, so it had like a Sprite, uh, it had some Sprite uh, chips that had a separate CPU for the hard drive, for the disk drive, so it could load things faster, all sorts of stuff like that. But I eventually learned the TRS-80, the the Commodore 64, the Apple II GS. Um, I programmed in assembly language in, in almost everything in my career. It was late, very late in my career before I did anything but uh, assembly language in C++. Oh, that's, um, that's pretty good. We actually encountered the Commodore 64 when we explored Peter Molyneux's live. Yeah. Like yeah. a few years back because that was the first device he was working on. Sure. Um, 
you you met most of your co later colleagues um, when you were working at that store, right? Because That's there was right. like yeah. kind of a tech military around it. Well, um, well, I met I met Brett, and then we started to be friends, and we worked on a couple of game projects together. I worked with the people I worked with. We tried to start a company called Out of the Blue Software, but it failed. Uh, we just didn't didn't get a contract. So, but as far as the comment, the question earlier is this: How you found developers? I think. It's you found other hobbyists that were that were looking to work in games. So I suppose to some extent, yeah, you know, going to um, hobbyist computer stores is definitely a way to find people that because there was no internet, right? You're not gonna. There's no way to find them that way. So you, yeah, that's how you would find people. For me, when I when, when I read about that, you guys kind of met around the store. It always reads a bit like when like these old rock bands like meet each other in these weird circumstances and then kind yeah. of go on to do great things. Does it, does it kind of feel like that? That's yeah. I mean, I, I certainly, the first time I met Brett, you know, he was, we, I met him several times. We talked a few times and then what really was the fateful moment was he needed to do a printout. He was working on, I want to say it was Dragon's Fire. Uh, might've been something else actually. No, it had to be before that. because we worked on that one together. So he was working on a game and he needed a printout. I don't recall which one it was. And um, the the store wouldn't allow you to print reams of paper, right? Because <laughs> this costs some money. I said, I said, hey, I got a printer in my house. You can come over to my house and just print it out. It's okay. So he came over and he was printing out a bunch of source code, um, basically a um, assembly. Um, and he was he was while he was printing it, we were talking, and he said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I don't know. I just want to have fun. I just want to have a good time in life, and I'm kind of following my passion, and we'll see where it leads. I, I'm young and don't really have a clear idea of where I want to go yet. And he goes, I just want to create a company where um, where we can make games and I can do this for a living. And and I would love to love to just be able to do that. And I said, well, it's sort of aligned. Why don't we work together? And and um, I did artwork for the first couple of games of his. And then he was over at a different time, I think. It might have been the same one, but I had done this animation of a... You guys remember Dragon Slayer by any chance? Have you ever done anything on that? So I've there's a footage for this episode. Yeah, there's a, there's a moment there's a moment of Dragon Slayer where uh, Dirk the Daring is running down a hallway, and I yeah. thought that was just a really cool idea. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool if the camera was behind the guy running down the hall and the hall was coming at you? Now you got to remember back then, like uh, these were this was the day of platformers, right? Side action games. So the idea of going deep into a screen was was just kind of unthinkable. Um, and even wizardry and games like that hadn't come out yet. So, so I, I did this little demo of a character that was about a quarter of the size of the screen running from behind using a, a cyclical animation and the corridor was coming at him. And it was about probably about half the real estate of the screen was actually moving. It was all written in assembly language and, and Brett just was floored. He's like, how are you even doing that? <laughs> and, and it's because I was going to college at the time, taking computer science classes and, you know, I was uh, learning all about things and, and I just was too dumb to know that you're not supposed to be able to do that. So, <laughs> so, so that kind of led myself down a career and there was times, time and time again, you know, it's one of these things where um, our very first game is, as Westwood, we walked out of the meeting and as long story there, as Brett says, well, I didn't know you knew how to program a Macintosh and I, and I own a Mac, you know? And I said, well, I don't, but how hard can it be, right? It's just, it's another processor, we'll figure it out. So we took our first job <laughs> to work on a game on the Macintosh and neither of us ever even coded on the thing, so. <laughs> yeah, and this is like, we noticed that we have a lot of throwbacks to Peter Molyneux whenever we do episodes about everything. And I think, Molyneux once came into a similar situation where he just said that he could do something and then just learned it on the spot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's so, not, yeah. not far from that. I mean, that's probably being a little, a, a little bit 
maybe a little hyperbole, but, but it was, it was literally <laughs> in the meeting, sure. in the meeting, we were given an opportunity to do our own. This is how Westwood was born. Uh, mm -hmm. They wanted us to port a game from the Commodore 64, which we had done a lot of games on. And we were very competent at, at that time um, as individual game developers. And he said, uh, it was Bob Lindsay. He said, he said, well, we've got this, we want to put this game, this trilogy from Sean Freeman called the Temple of Abshai trilogy. We want to port it to the Macintosh. And um, he said, can you guys do that? And now I owned a Mac and I sold Macintoshes at the computer store and I had played around with um, uh, a lot of the tools. I had sold Lisa's. And so I, I was I was fairly familiar with the operating system. I, I just didn't know 68,000. I'd never learned 68,000 coding. So I just said, I said, sure, we can, we can do that. We didn't say we could program it. We said we could do it, right? And uh, so we didn't lie. But uh, as soon as we walked out of there, Brett was like stunned. He's like, I didn't know you knew how to program the Mac. I'm like, ah, how hard can it be? And I ordered the the manuals from Apple and it was 1700 pages of inside Macintosh. I'm like, oh, this is a different animal. This is very different. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was a lot of work. <laughs> Is, and is that a, the whole thing was built in Pascal. The whole operating system was a Pascal interface. Fortunately, I, I wrote, I had already written games in Pascal, so I knew how to run Pascal. So. Is that like a feeling you've encountered more often in your career where you, you, you set yourself a goal out of pure ambition? And then once you actually encounter what it actually entails, you, you kind of start well, to, to slow down. If I'm going to be really, really cheeky about it, yes. Uh, and <laughs> a lot of times Brett, Brett would just write those checks and I'd have to be the one who cashes them, you know? I mean, he, he, signed this, he signed a deal. Well, he had to sign a deal. We didn't, we had the contract, but he agreed to a deal to do a kid's game and the Micro Illusions guys. And they said, uh, it's uh, some spelling game. I can't remember the name of it now. And um, and he goes, he goes, yeah, he goes, we've got a great rate on this game. They're, they're paying us like double what we would normally pay. And he was so proud. And I go, well, what's the game? And he goes, well, it's a, it's a kid's game. And, uh, you know, it's basically it puts the letters up on the screen and it, you know, it's, it spells them out. And then it asks the kid to spell it and the kid spells it and then it checks it. And I go, so it's speech synthesis and speech recognition. And he goes, yeah, yeah. I go, <laughs> like, the Apple can't do that, bro. He goes, he, goes, he goes, oh, Lou, you'll figure it out. We always figure it out. <laughs> like, like, wow. wow. He did, right? And he did. I mean, so you know, we, we figured it out. You know, we got it to work. Uh, I don't know how much Barry contributed that one, but I'm sure he probably did. I mean, it was just like, uh, it was just kind of, you, you get in there and you go, okay, well, how would I do this? And yeah. then it's just, then it immediately becomes brain damage. You know, and you realize how hard those problems are. <laughs> You're just going to stop working though. Yeah. yeah. One very similar to that. I've told this story before, but it's absolutely hundred percent true. Brett, Brett was talking to us, myself and a couple other technical leaders at Westwood for command and conquer. And we were showing um, back in the day that it was typical to have um, screen video screens, be like a screen inside of the screen because you couldn't move yep. enough pixels. Right. So CD-ROM had a, what is it, a um, 44 kilohertz, 144 kilohertz, whatever it is, the, the speed of a single speed CD-ROM. And so um, basically to play audio at CD quality, it takes 100% of a single speed CD-ROM drive. So you have to compress the hell out of audio just to get something else to come through at the same time. Then on top of that, the video screen, the screen that we're trying to animate uh, for full screen video was almost a megabyte of data. And, uh, you know, back then that just was the, the ratio of, data stream to, to video was just an impossible task. So he wanted full screen video. He said, it's going to break the whole idea of you being attached to the battlefield. If you're looking at a little screen, it needs to feel like a cinematic experience. And, and he's, and he said, you're just being lazy. You guys will figure it out. And, uh, no. 
And we went out, we've researched, you know, all of the, even with assistive hardware back then, like MPEG players and stuff, you still couldn't get full screen audio and video. And we did it. We figured it out. We got it to work. And I could go into great detail about what a trial and tribulation that was because it was an, it was a iterative process. We got it to work with a lot of caveats and immediately the artist violated all the caveats. And then that just kept going again and again and again. And eventually it's a, just a miracle. We were able to ship Command and Conquer with full screen audio and video. And it was, it was strictly because of the talented electronic uh, engineering team at, um, at Westwood. I mean, it certainly built on a lot of things I did, but I was by no means the only person working on it. Yeah. I mean, um, by, by the time of Command and Conquer, your studio had grown quite a bit. Um, uh, not that much. 95. I mean, we, we were still pretty small. Um, I think the, you know, the common, the, the, the team for Command and Conquer might've been under 30 people. It was 20 something people, which was a huge team for those, for those days for us anyways. I mean, when yeah. we when we were when we were acquired by Virgin in 1992, so we hadn't started um, Command and Conquer yet. We were still working on Dune, um, Dune Two, finished Dune Two around around then. We were 29 people, and I think by 95 we might have gotten to be 50ish. I don't know. Yeah. I had to go back and look. It wasn't that big of a studio yet, but we were doing 40 SKUs a year. We were doing, um, you know, eight games, five platforms each. <laughs> Wow. crazy number of things yeah that's that's also why that if you go to the, the moby games page and go back under westwood and click the little button that says show more for credits it'll give you the list of the games they have they do not have them all there's a dozen or more that i know of that are not on there and um, i did something on almost every game on that list uh, a tremendous amount of work um the, but before command and conquer there was um uh uh, quite a lot of other games that you did and these oh, yeah. came from <laughs> these were more like there was tactical um, real-time tactics games but there was also a lot of role-playing games like i hope you be older a lot of role-playing games so i had been a dungeon master for like 16 years and run the campaign for all our friends and a lot of people that worked at westwood so our very first games for westwood were sports games um, through epics uh, so we did a, a our very first game was a role-playing game but it was a port from john freeman's and then immediately we went in and started doing the the games games, world games, winter games, California games, and those, because um, those were the big money makers for for epics. And we were we were quite the top of our game when it came to Amiga graphics. That's another deep story, but we were able to get the Amiga to do things that a lot of other developers just couldn't get it to do, because um, we cheated. Uh, <laughs> and um, uh, around the same time, we were still building our, our role-playing games. So we did the Mars Saga, which became Minds of Titan, and we yep. worked on Quest, Quest Round 2. Um, we did a lot of war games for SSI. We did Battle of Shiloh, Gettysburg, um, oh gosh, a bunch of them, Road War, Road War Europa. Um, so these were all um, kind of strategy games and war games. So if you look back at the history of Westwood between sports games, RPGs, we always like to do real-time stuff. That was our thing, was trying to make things in real-time. The, the first game we did, the Temple of Abshai Trilogy, we made it in real-time. In real time. I wrote it as a real-time dungeon hack, kind of like, um, uh, gosh, what was Michael Toy's game called? Um, Rogue. Yeah. And oh. so I made it, I made yeah. it like Rogue, uh, and the Epic Epics lost their, their shit over it. <laughs> so mm -hmm. they, they were like, oh my God, you can't do that. It's got to be turn-based. It's got to be pure to the original. So I had to go back in my code and put in blocks to block it, make sure it would all go turn-based because I'd written the whole thing to be run in real time. So from the very beginning, um, it's something we always imagined games were going to be very challenging, both um, mentally and physically. And I think that was not the prevailing 
opinion of our day, it was uh, it's either a game is a difficult mental challenge or it's a physical Twitch game. And there really was a, a great divide in many people's minds. And we always felt that you could put them together. What's, what's the moment that you truly figured out how to how to implement something in real time instead of turn-based? The moment where you realized that this is the future of, oh. of, of where video games would have to go at some point. Yeah, I easily remember that. It was with um, Eye of the Beholder. Uh, and we owe a lot of that to Faster Than Light. Faster Than Light did a game called Dungeon Master on the mm -hmm. ST. And so we we had the D&D license and we had to imagine a game for the Amiga, um, Amiga ST on PC that would be um, a, a role-playing game in the in the D&D um, &D universe. And so we did um, Eye of the Beholder and it was set in uh, Waterdeep. Yep. Uh, and so um, that game, like you could just tell it was magic. You could just, when you were playing it, it's like it was clearly just magic. It's actually my favorite D and D setting, and I looked at footage, and I've I've um, uh, I've heard commentary about it that it's like a, a fancy clone of Dungeon Master. It has been described as that, so I think that yeah, doesn't do I mean, it justice because it's yeah, so much. That's, cool. that's both fair and unfair, right? Was did it borrow yeah. a lot from that? Absolutely, they borrowed a lot from Wizardry, though they added bitmap graphics to Wizardry. Let's face it, right? Yeah. And Wizardry borrowed a lot from D and D because they borrowed almost all their rules and many yeah. of their enemies. So, uh, and we, we were never we were never. Um, uh, bashful about it. We said, well, yeah, we've, we, we recognize that as the forerunner. Um, you, you'd have to recognize it the first of its type. Um, but a lot of their stuff didn't run truly in real time and they didn't try to implement the D and D second edition rules. The amount of D and D rules was a literally a Bible of rules to try to build into a video game. And it so it is. Yeah. I, yeah. I there's, there's, <laughs> yeah. And their stuff, their stuff was just simplified to a point where it could work as a game, but it wasn't as complex as what, Yep. So, so if you just look at the presentation of it, you would say it's similar. Although I would argue that we we had really stunningly good graphics uh, programmers, or not programmers, but uh, artists as well. And so I think our our game just looked a lot better personally. It looks really uh, beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I'd say that you know we definitely upped the gra graphics game. We we didn't use obviously we didn't copy any of their code because we had to follow the D and D rules. And I think that was the biggest design challenge was to make a game that was fun as a video game, but but was true to D and D. Um, so I don't think that you could you could call either beholder a, a a fancy port of of Dungeon Master. You wouldn't be doing doing it any any service. But you also could say it was definitely uh, definitely inspired by and built upon that. It was a spiritual successor. One could call you a legend in the video game history <laughs> industry. Um, that a legend in my own mind. <laughs> a legend in your own mind, if you want to say that. But um, like there's people looking up to you. Um, but yeah. have you ever had the opportunity, because you've, you've kind of grown in the industry and are now at least within the industry, a very well-known person. Have you ever had the chance through this personal growth to meet people that were actually idols for yourself? Like, oh, yeah. So many times. Oh, hundreds of times. I mean, the one that leaps right to mind is I got to work with Steven Spielberg for three years. Oh, yeah. um, I mean, that was pretty big. <laughs> he's always been, a, you know, he's everybody's legend, I suppose, in some ways. I mean, what oh, an yeah. amazing storyteller. Uh, but I really, I really love Steven's history because of his background in games and the fact that he's always uh, viewed games as a valid medium. Um, and I think that's, that's unique amongst him and his peers. But I've met so many famous people now. I, it's just almost impossible to name them all because of the because of video games especially with westwood's fame and and our budgets we were able to hire a bunch of um a-list 
Hollywood actors, Michael Green, James Earl Jones. James Earl Jones, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it just goes on and on and on. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, dozens. I got to work with, uh, even though it was a virgin project, I got to work with Sylvester Stallone. I got to work with, so these are just people that you go, wow, of course I'm going to look up to them. And then also from the video games industry. I mean, Doug Church was a hero of mine. He was such a technical genius. And I got a chance to work with him on some of the Spielberg stuff and got a chance to work with um, legends in the games industry as well. So it's been it's been really fun to to be in this industry and be lucky enough to be around in the beginning, you know, passionate enough to work my butt off. And, um, you know, uh, <laughs> it's it's a combination of things. And, you know, I would, I would certainly say I have some talents that are good enough, uh, certainly good enough at the time. And, you know, am I the best artist I've ever known? Not by a long shot, but I could say that of everything I've ever done. I'm probably not the best at any of it. Um, my, my particular talent has been to be able to be competent in many things and good at some things. Speaking of idols and things that inspire um, inspire your work, um, if we talk about Command and Conquer and specifically, is, was there like a specific inspiration for these games? I mean, that also like were spawned out of Dune 2, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that so so I'd have to speak as a we in this case. I can't speak because yes, I wasn't yeah. I wasn't the game director for right. Command and Conquer. That was Brett, um, and really so much of it had to do with. So Joe Bostic, um, who's one of the founders of Petroglyph, uh, deserves an incredible amount of credit on this because he he was the one on the Dune 2 game that he loved a game called Military Madness, um, which was uh, an NEC game, TurboGrafx game. And he said, I just really, I love the way this base building and combat works. And I'd love to be able to do that in a real-time environment, blah, blah, blah. And so he kind of conceived of the notion. And then Brett, we had talked to Virgin about Dune and Brett loved Dune. It was his favorite book. Um, And so he goes, well, let's set this game in, in the, on the desert of Arrakis and all that. And then Rick Parks and Ren Olson, our artists, uh, and myself, were sitting there scratching our head. Okay, how do we make sand look good in 8-bit graphics, you know, or 16-bit graphics in the days, and have dozens of different kinds of sand? I mean, I don't remember. They had 50 different names for sand in the Dune universe or something like that. And, and um, then you also have to, like, animate the worm sign. So the sand right, has to exactly. kind of move. So, <laughs> so then it goes on. Yeah, then it goes on and on and on. So my, my, my participation in Dune... Um, which was really the inspiration for Command and Conquer. Uh, it was Dune. Um, that that was really kind of where I got a lot of involved, and I set the visual tone for Dune as a um, being a sand, sandy desert environment. Um, then, of course, we started Command and Conquer. It was originally Swords and Sorcery. It was going to be orcs versus humans. That would have been awkward. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, you might have had some so, competition there. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah. yeah, it would have been interesting because uh, you know, of course, we were sequeling our own game with a, a theme that. Uh, Blizzard had announced uh, not too long after that, but we'd actually moved away from Swords and Sorcery. Brett felt like the the category wasn't going to be as as adaptable to a mass market, and he had this vision for, um, you know, basically a modern a modern day warfare version of Doom, and that the and and it was Brett's vision as far as I know. Edie Laramore had a lot to do with the story, but I, I'm pretty sure it was Brett that said, you know, his vision was that the next war wasn't going to be fought between nations. It was going to be fought between the 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 organized, um, quote, civilized world and um, the downtrodden uh, or uh, terror, be, they'd be labeled as terrorist organizations that were trying to represent the under underappreciated and undervalued members of the world. And that would be the next great military conflict because it would be a, a kind of army that would be very difficult to fight. And so that was the whole inspiration for the Command and Conquer um, story, um, you know, credits goes to the guys who wrote the story. I did not write the story. Um, and then it was really up to myself and all the engineers, uh, at, at engineers and artists at Westwood to try to bring that to life. 
So we were very much involved in recognizing or, or following the vision. But as far as the inspiration, I think Brett was inspired by Dune to build something that was modern, that was similar. Speaking of uh, Command and Conquer, if you look at the um, the development of the game series, there's basically what as a kid always confused me because my brother was huge into Command and Conquer. There's like two different branches of the game, right? Because there's Red Alert and there's the Tiber Tiberian Saga sure. for a long time. As a child, I didn't know what was going on. And then, how did these branches? How did it come to these different branches? It happened, it happened quite organically. So, um, so we did the first Command and Conquer, which was quite innovative in many ways. And then we did something that was equally innovative from a marketing point of view. Um, people were just crying for more content. And we said, well, what if we just sold a, a, an expansion pack? What if we just sold like more missions? Um, that, that really hadn't been done. I mean, people just didn't do that back then. Uh, the idea of DLC, there wasn't even DLC. It was picking up the just store common and plug it in. Now. Yeah, the, the idea, <laughs> yeah. yeah, the idea that you would go to the store and buy a game that required another game to play it was like unthinkable. And so we floated Sounds the idea. It's kind of like a scam, right? Yeah, well, we took, <laughs> we took a chance with it. Um, we took a chance with it and uh, it did really well. It was called Covert Missions. Yeah. Um, and then we did CNC Gold because Blizzard had put out... Um, Warcraft, the first Warcraft by then. And we we needed to put in multiplayer and a bunch of other things that just weren't quite as clean as they could have been. So we were behind on multiplayer, always were at Westwood. We never really caught up to Blizzard. They invested a lot in multiplayer. Wish we had, but we hadn't. Um, so anyways, we were looking to do the next set of um, expansions. And we started work on this one called Red Alert. And it was meant to be kind of a tongue-in-cheek uh, take on 50s uh, creature feature films and the, the whole basis was, what if all of the crazy stuff that um, scientists thought might be possible from, you know, wormholes and, you know, telekinetic dolphins and all sorts of other stuff, what if all this stuff was real? And it, and there's just such a, such a rich history during World War II where science could solve any problem with some crazy solution um, that that's what inspired the Philadelphia experiment. All this stuff was inspiring um, Red Alert. So we got we were working on this expansion pack and we were probably, I want to say we were at least six months, which was a long time back then into it. And it was just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And we're like, you know what? We can't, we can't build this on top of command and conquer. It's going to need to have its own release as a full game. And it'll be the sequel to command and conquer. But then as it got more and more evolved, it's like, well, it doesn't really fit the command and conquer universe. It doesn't fit the Tiberium. It doesn't take itself seriously enough. So we'll do it as a, We'll do it as a, a tongue-in-cheek um, kind of nod to the past and maybe even tease a little bit of it could be the Man of Command and Conquer prequel, but maybe not. And so that was released as that was released as Red Alert. And so at the very end of Red Alert, it was one of the last things we did. Um, Joe Kukin appears in the um, last, one of the last videos that you see in Red Alert as as Kane, obviously. And we don't explain it, it just he just appears. And so you're like, oh crap, does that have anything to do with that? Or is that a multiverse kind of situation? Is just Cain this this supernatural being that exists in many times and places? And that that was a great little bit of fodder for all the fans to kind of do it. And honestly, at that time, we hadn't really decided firmly what things were going to be. They were still very quite malleable. So um, we played around with that. Of course, Red Alert ended up getting being so successful. It had its own expansion packs and then it had yeah. its own sequels. Um, and we never really quite sewed it back to the Command and Conquer universe, but there's always been a, a bit of a nod to the fact that, um, you know, it, it currently certainly could be the beginning since Kane was 
was was intended to be the brother of Abel and an, and an immortal, it certainly could be that he existed in multiple places and multiple times. So. Yeah, just for people to understand, Joe Kukin, um, he played Cain in the Tiberian, right. in the Tiberian saga, right. who was kind of the villain, but who also was just a yeah. member of your team, right? Well, so that was the point of Command and Conquer, was you could play as GDI or you could play as Nod. Oh, yeah. If you played as Nod, you were one of um, Cain's acolytes, and you were uh, you were going to you were trying to free the world. This 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 rare substance called Tiberium had crash landed or a meteor had landed and it, it was transforming the earth, but it would also had this tesseract and this promise of technology, um, a new type of fuel source and technology that would that would make energy abundant and basically free the world. And it was littered all over the places of the world where there were downtrodden societies and people who didn't have much. Um, and this is a not too subtle nod to oil being found in the desert, right? That's exactly where it came from. Um, and the idea was that uh, Cain was this charismatic leader that was basically saying the, the, that the, the civilized or the, na the, the nations of the world are corrupt. And it's really up to the people to take it back and through the brotherhood nod, you know, peace through peace through power, brother unity, peace. They all these all these slogans were about being um, being an organization that was without borders that would fight back against the tyrannical um, rule of nations. And of course, the GDI is the Global Defense Initiative, all the civilized world that says, um, "Hey, you know, you, you're basically terrorists because you're you're controlling the substance we think is really valuable." <laughs> so, so obviously, you must be terrorists. <laughs> so it's not as cut and dry as. Um, as people make it out to be, but clearly yeah. the the methodologies of Cain were ruthless and and merciless. Um, and so there was, if you want to do like a on the scale of good and evil, he was definitely the bad guy. Um, but it wasn't necessarily as clear that he was trying to do the wrong thing as much as it was, you know, he was trying to liberate the world. And you later find out in the in a whole series of games that um, as a spoiler here, you might want to turn the volume down if you don't want to hear it. But, it <laughs> but, but Kane is actually trying to bring about the end of days. That's what he's trying to do. So he's been from the very beginning, he was trying to incite um, global nuclear war, global war, war of any kind that would end the days because the, the biblical prophecy was that he could finally die if it was the end of days. So he was trying to bring about the end of days. He was tired of waiting. What's really interesting here is um, we've already hinted at it, but all of this that we, the, all this story that we talked about in the Command and Conquer games is actually played out by real actors. Like we already mentioned, some of the names yeah. of these actors, yeah. and and this was a huge deal. Um, yes, it was. Do you like th this? Must have cost a lot of money, right? This was this must have it was been a lot. It was a lot cheaper than CG. It still is. <laughs> um, so you know, that, at, the, yeah. at, the, at the time, um, we tried some experiments of CGI and. We just weren't happy with the believability of the characters. And so um, the, remember that the idea of the original, maybe you don't know, but the original idea of the Command and Conquer was that you were this hobbyist working on your computer and you had been recruited by this global organization, NOD or GDI, to um, command uh, enemy or command units or battlefields, um, very much like Austin Scott Card's Ender Game. You were basically a remote commander. And so, um, in fact, we got a call from the Defense Department after we launched Command and Conquer. They were wondering where we got our ideas, but that's another story. Um, <laughs> um, and so, so the idea that the, that's why Brett was so adamant about the full screen audio video. That's why we wanted to have things be as believable as possible. In the early days, we had the graphics were all labeled recreations so that we weren't trying to pass them off as video. But we eventually dropped that because we thought they were, well, they're good enough to wear, you know, 
the it, it felt cheap if you didn't see a a flame tank actually say recreation on you you want to know that it was a flame tank but of course using live actors worked out really well because um you could get an actor in the studio and and Joe Kukin by the way was also our theatrical manager he recruited um uh cast all of our our settings um and he directed the talent and that's actually what he used to do for the company before he became Kane. He read the role of Kane so well that Brett and I are like, why don't you just be Kane? And so he goes, yeah, I can do that. So <laughs> he became Kane. So anyways, long story short is that we used real actors because that was the fastest and cheapest way to get a story that could be believable. And, um, you know, he, he was a director of local, Koken was a director of local theater trip and still is to this day. And so um, he had a great source of original talent. We used a lot of local people, uh, local weathermen and a bunch of other folks were um were starred in the first command and conquer a lot of people who worked at westwood are in command and conquer as as bit parts I, really I fun. It, it sounds really fun i remember it watching i think one of the most fun parts of the command and conquer games always was watching the um uh, the movie parts because yeah. they like they were always about serious topics but they were sometimes unintentionally funny because yeah of... that's that's actually <laughs> the, the funny part about it is we weren't trying to be campy, right? We were trying to be as serious as possible, but with limited budget, um, sometimes dubious talent. I mean, we're game design designers, we're not <laughs> actors, right? And with all these other things, um, it just, it had a sense of coming off as campy, but some of the problems I have with, with uh, subsequent um, video game performances where people try to be campy is you, it's really not, uh, you don't get, um, you don't get uh, evil dead because you aimed for camp exactly. You have to aim a little more on the serious side and then just some things just sort of magically happen and they're just kind of dorky and weird. Um, and that's kind of where we landed. So there are definitely some funny moments that weren't intended as comedy, but they came out comedic. But you you did lean a bit more into the funny with Red Alert, right? Yeah, no, so that was different. That was the point was from a style point of view, uh, Red Alert was intended to be bombastic. From the yeah. very beginning, everything was supposed to be over the top. I mean, you know, was, you, know you just... Every every unit in the game, everything about Red Alert was meant to be um, just kind of weird and weird science kind of weird, you know. So the actors, we wanted the actors to be over the top. In fact, actually, I remember Joe getting to cut loose a little bit. And he'd say, no, 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 just more dramatic. You need to be more dramatic, you know, really. Like, it just doesn't feel real. He goes, it's not supposed to be real. Just push it as far as you can. Be, be completely crazy because um, that's what made it really fun. That also kind of made it great. I remember that in, in Red Alert, there's this track, Hell March. Oh, yeah. It, that was it, it, Frank's, it really Frank's sent, music. Frank, yeah, <laughs> Frank, it sent goosebumps yeah. down my spine. And I watched yeah. my brother play Red Alert. And then later it's on. It's still being used, yeah. I, well, then and, later, and, I, and, <laughs> I no, watched I say, my, everything about it. Everything about Hell's March. Just the fact that that music came up. And then we animated the sequence to the music with a... I mean, everything about that sequence was just like... <laughs> Talk about crazy fun. It was just fun. And then in Red Alert 2, when I played it myself and the intro came in and then the, the Zeppelins show up over New York and then Hellmarch starts, I was, it, I, it was amazing. I loved it yeah. so much. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Red Alert was just, uh, it was great fun. I mean, we were, we were, um, I don't know, we were just, what it was was a, a video game studio that was at the top of their game doing some fun stuff. And we were able to just take our own IP, our own idea and get nuts with it, get crazy with it. And that just doesn't really happen. Like you would, uh, you've got a $3 billion franchise with Call of Duty. Um, Activision is not going to tell them, just go do something crazy and do something weird. They're like, no, 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 no. Hey, time out. We're not going to spend that kind of money. And, and we were spent a lot of money on Red Alert for the day. It was, it was a full budget game. Uh, and so 
it was just a, a coincidence of circumstances that um, allowed us to do something that was just really fun, really innovative, and really, it was basically a bunch of game makers able to just cut loose to do what, what something they thought would be entertaining. Do yeah. you think that that is why um, it has, it was so well received and why it has stuck around for so long? Is because yeah, it so. was so different from what it was at the time? Yeah, I think Command and Conquer because it um, it was the the start of the genre and it had a certain gravitas to it that was I think was was interesting and an interesting storyline. Um, but then Red Alert because of its theme. I mean, it's 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 less the gameplay in Red Alert. It's more about um, just the the crazy themes it had and and probably jumped the shark at some point. But we'll, we we could get into that at some other point. <laughs> but, it, but 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 it certainly started with Red Alert. Red Alert two. They were they were just good rock and fun. I mean. Um, it was, they really did um, kind of hit every button. It, and it is, you know, if you think about it, um, it was never intended to be a sequel, right? It was never intended to be sequeled. Uh, right. So it's it's harder to sequel something like that, which kind of just, you know, we sort of threw everything we had at it versus Command and Conquer, which was always intended, the, the Tiberian series always intended to be a trilogy and ended up being a, uh, a four act uh, part because the last one became too big to tell in one story but. Um, Sounds like Harry Harry Potter in a way, right? You're, you're, yeah. you're yeah, just got too big. Your adventure gets too big, and you yeah. can't. You, your invention gets too big, and you can't handle it. Yeah, so. kind of leaning somewhere else in the realm of video game development. There's like, um, I think, even in the realm of art in general, there's like a balance between financial considerations and uh, artistic vision. Yes, um, that you have to seek to convey. How have you reconciled these opposing forces in your career? Well, that's that's a tough one. Um, I think that that's actually been the art of designing and delivering great games, uh, is is reconciling that exact problem. How much how much innovation is enough? Uh, how much becomes too risky for the audience to adopt it? And then how much are you willing to spend? How much are you willing to risk uh, against a future which, depending on how much innovation you have, is quite unclear. Um, it's one of the reasons that I think the criticism of the industry, which is quite valid, uh, that there's so many sequels and so many incremental changes. Uh, frankly, customers vote with their dollars. And uh, as long as they're eating up the same game, kind of re repackaged with a new theme um, again and again and again, as long as they're paying for it and and that's still hitting the top of the charts, they're going to, the, the, the game makers, the businesses are, are financially motivated to keep doing that. And when you punish people that are innovative, because they've changed your game too much as a customer, if that happens in mass, then the innovations die. Um, and I've seen many, many games that that in sequels have taken some big chances and and been handed their heads for it. And others that, um, you know, that like they changed the weapon systems and a bunch of things at the Treyarch games with Black Ops and that revitalized the thing of probably would not have been as strong of a franchise over the years had they not done that. So uh, the balance between finance and things but but there's actually another part of this that's also really hard to, to that mixes in with all that which is just the availability of the talent and how hard the talent you have can deliver uh there's a i think there's a common misconception that with a big enough budget uh, a triple a a double a team can deliver a triple a game uh and the answer is they can't um there is just there's just an, a, a a mix of talent and maturity and it's not always one or the other but it's usually a blend of the two you can have insanely talented people that have never done it before that just hit it out of the park. You can have incredibly experienced people that just never quite get there. But it's some mix of the two that becomes magical as a team where you can start to deliver the, the kind of products, the kind of experiences that meet up to 
or match the expectation that is at the top of the charts. Um, it's not just money. It's just like films. You can spend uh, godless amounts of money to try to manufacture a hit and you can fail. Uh, same thing happens in video games. So it's kind of a mix of these three things. It's like um, how much how much financial risk do you have available and how much can you take? How much finances do you have? What can you take? Uh, what kind of team do you have? What kind of product can they deliver? And then right-sizing that into the audience expectations too, because um, it's not always a good formula to try to over-deliver just with production quality. Uh, it's it's worked well for Blizzard over the years. I mean, generally speaking, they've taken some pretty well-understood genres. They haven't innovated that much, but they've taken the production levels to an ungodly level of quality. And they've been rewarded for that again and again. Um, and good, good for them, you know. Um, so... I think it all depends on where you're at in the business. And this is the, this is the, the uh, age old uh, challenge of hiring good game directors and good business developers to make sure that they're getting the right mix so that you can have both a, a financial success and a game and a, and a critical success. Is there a leap that you think the command and conquer series would have had to do financially to kind of get out of where it was? The franchise would still exist today. Uh, we were never, at least during the Westwood days, we were never, um, We were never held back by budget. It was always time and, and resources. It wasn't budget. Like we, the, the we re recognized fairly early on in the series that we probably should have built our own online platform, like Blizzard did. But yeah. by the time by the time we got there, we just didn't have the time in any one given development cycle to do it. It was just an incredibly difficult um, task to do. So kind of fell behind on that one, which is one of the reasons Command and Conquer was never really suitable as an esport, um, which was very important at that time to have the kind of cachet. Um, mm -hmm. But but I, I know Command and Conquer was a very successful franchise. When you consider that um, Command and Conquer had a couple of games done by one studio, then a couple more done by another studio, which was uh, Westwood Pacific. Then it would move to another studio and had three more done. Then it moved to another studio and had three or four more done. I mean, you know, that's that's a pretty long lineage is, of being yes. able to sequel the same series um, and be relatively successful all the way. If there was a point in time where um, uh, EA wanted to reboot the Command and Conquer and go after StarCraft II, and um, they had talked to me about it, and I said, well, I'm happy to do it um, and bring together a, a, the team, bring back the boys, as it were. <laughs> bring back, put, put, the team, put the team back put together Put the band again. back together. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. But, but, um, but, you know, we need a budget that's going to be, at that time, I think it was probably, uh, probably $40, $50 million. Dollars. And, you know, you could just see the, the jaws drop in the room. They go... Well, I, 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 how are you going to do that? Because, uh, <laughs> you're asking us to start from almost scratch and compete with a game that's um, that's had at least that spent on it in its latest iteration and not even the history. I go, that's actually going to be difficult as it is. And it's well established uh, in the esports market. Yeah, but you, can, mm -hmm. you can't just start from nothing and no. um, at a quarter of the price compete with the best in the industry. I don't care how creative you are, you're going to get killed. And so, uh, so it didn't happen ultimately, but... Um, I mean, this is the thing. If anybody's going to want to reboot a franchise and take on the tops of the industry, you got to be willing to spend pretty heavily against it. And, and there are companies that'll do that. I mean, uh, Microsoft, Activision, Sony, they'll all spend deeply into titles to capture the top of the charts. Um, that's not something you can do on an indie budget. You got to have a big, big publisher, um, you know, Warner Brothers or somebody like that behind you, uh, Netflix now, somebody who's willing to spend deep. It's It's not... Not for the faint of heart. You're going to take risk is what it comes down to. <laughs> um, we kind the, of rewards are, the rewards are great, though. The rewards are yeah. rewards are billion-dollar mm -hmm. billion franchises and multi-billion-dollar valuations. So, you know, 
hundreds of million dollars may sound like a lot, but when you look at the potential upside, it's it's a pretty it's a pretty uh, attractive reward if you can feel relatively confident in success. Um, and it's and it's pretty high risk, right? Because it's a, a like the the market is maybe. Do you do you feel yeah. like the market is more saturated than it was um, uh, um, a while ago? Yeah, I think I think that the uh, it's classic of all evolving entertainment forms. The market is saturated with not quite good enough, um, and so if you try to be one of those top running titles in the past, you might have been able to spend your way to a modest return because you were landed in a space where well, it's good enough, not quite top ten, but you know what, people bought it. But that's just not the case anymore. If you fall below the kind of highest performing, highest success titles, if you're not a, a hit, um, you're in with so many other titles that even though you might have high production values and spend a lot of money, you're just gonna you're just gonna um, flounder when it comes to a financial return. Uh, but the audience keeps growing too, so there's also that right. So every year there's more people, which means that the top of the list make even more money, which means you can invest more if you have some reasonable chance of being successful. And then, of course, that causes the opposite problem, which is there are more really well-funded almost hits. And so yes. more competition. More competition. Yeah. Makes it very, very hard for indies nowadays. That's the hardest category because getting to be seen, getting to be known, breaking out is hard. And then um, there's just so much content out there. It's hard to keep people's attention for long enough to to be relevant. Yeah, the wolf for attention. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah Docs and I have, um, sometimes we talk about... Um, we knew this guy and he once said, uh, it's like I wished on a monkey's paw for unlimited video games as a child. And now I have that, but I don't yeah. have unlimited time, right? Like <laughs> right. there's just so much out there to play. You always have a game to play that you can, you know, many of you, you can even get for free, but it's just like, there's this yeah. huge saturation coming from a time when you get like one game and play it for like six months. Cause that's all you had. Right. So yeah. Yeah. Just so a different world though. It's fragmentation now. So you, you want to try to, you want to try to be top in a category. Um, mm -hmm. And unfortunately, the it's also a hits-driven business, business when it comes to the categories. So many of the categories that used to be fairly robust are kind of fallen to very low low possible returns on investment because there's not that many games of high quality in them. So it's kind of a strange, uh, it is a strange sort of thing that's happened to the industry. It's become everybody wants a first-person shooter. Nobody wants to try to make a first-person shooter. So you end up with the same handful of games that keep being recycled and recycled to kind of turn back a bit on the um into the development of video games um like when we explore video game designers it's often fascinating to see how it, there's always this common theme we kind of touched on it already that they grapple with technical constraints only to embrace these um after a while and then turn them these constraints into innovations um that actually Ooh. improve the game um, can you share like a specific instance and maybe in the development of Command & Conquer or other games where you encountered something similar, like a constraint that would later on turn into something that was actually impressive? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the the constraints that you... So it's a, that's a lot to, un, to un, unwrap. But, um, <laughs> so, so video games, even to this day, even with very, very um, incredibly well-engineered engines like Unreal and Unity and other others um, continues to be about managing constraints. It's it's uh, it, on the surface, the demos make all these things look like they can do the impossible, 
but that's just a demo, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, the minute you try to put it into a real environment and use it in a real way, you're going to run into constraints and you're going to have to be clever about how you deal with the things. Most of the time, uh, it has to do with making a good trade-off for the, the benefits you're going to get um, for either trying to innovation or adopting a constraint. Um, and sometimes it's performance. It's oftentimes performance, whether that's uh, frames per second or you know reaction, the, how, the, how well the game reacts or things like that. There's always been a graphics trade-off. And even with uh, the sort of virtualized geometry sets and things like that that, um, that are available today, there's still a trade-off. There's always going to be a trade-off of what you're able to what you're able to do in a three minute video demo and what you're able to do in a in a full environment. Do you want an open world? Do you want a cast of thousands? You know, if you have a cast of thousands, it's just financially not viable to make them all look as good as metahuman. Um, unless you want them all to be off the shelf metahumans, in which case you're immediately labeled as just taking off the shelf assets. So there's this, there's all these trade-offs. But I think it goes back to something that is kind of tangential to all of this. Um, it's really important as a game, if I could encourage every game maker out there, um, come up with the idea, the thing, the single thing that you think is the idea that people will talk about after you've released the game of why that game was special. Like, what is it that made that game interesting and special? If And if that innovation, that key innovation doesn't have to be a very big one, it could be anything. But if that thing is um, at least the way you're doing it unique, like, there's so many ideas that have already been done, it's hard to find something totally unique, but there's always some new way to skin the cat. So there's something you've come up with, go, okay, everybody's done this, but I've done it differently, and this is how it's done differently. And then you build your idea out from there, and you try to constrain those, those, those innovations off to the side, because there's always going to be feature creep. Like stay focused on the thing that makes it unique. You're going to find out that the tools you're using, the platform you're going for, the audience that you want, to make that thing work, you're going to have to compromise in other places. Those are the good compromises to make. Compromise against the thing that doesn't matter to your vision. Um, stick to that vision. And don't make the compromises on the thing that matter to the vision. There you need to innovate. If you need to invent something new, invent something new. Um, for Blade Runner, we wanted a game that looked like the movie. You just couldn't do that with game engines at the time or with any real-time 3D thing. So we went with this kind of an entirely brand new approach to making video games so that it would look like the movie and yet play like a video game. And you know, for that reason, it won awards and it sold a lot of units. And um, wouldn't have happened if we had, had we, it was it was a it was a presentation vision. It wasn't a it wasn't an innovation like oh uh, we're going to come up with an art style that's never been seen before. It was like well no we're just going to make it look like the film. But that turns out to be a really hard constraint that becomes informs a lot of other decisions you make. Blade Runner is a really good example of um, of um, some of the really great work that you did. I, I watched like probably, an hour. Like, probably two things there, and I'm violating my own rule, but there were two. There was make it look like the film and make it a real detective story where you had to actually go through and play the game mm -hmm. versus just buy a, a guidebook. Because so. you, you, you never know who the fake people were, right? You always changed with yeah. every new playthrough. Yeah, well, um, more than more than that, um, yes, that <laughs> yes, and <laughs> yes, and um, the all the interactions with the characters uh, for its day, this was very innovative, were um, basically uh, encapsulated things that would look at the database of the game, and so they would they would they would talk to you based on the information that was currently happening in the state of the game, and they would give you different lines and different clues and stuff based on what was happening and what might happen, and so um, off screen. The characters in the world were moving from place to place and bumping into each other and exchanging information and doing all this stuff. So it was truly a simulator. 
So even even if you had exactly the same characters and you started the game with the exact same replicant mix, it was almost impossible to get even through the second chapter before your game was wildly um, had wildly deviated from the norm or from somebody else's. So the games they always played a little differently. <clears throat> And even the graphics were impressive. I watched like a half an hour video just on the dynamic lightning of, yeah. of Blade Runner and how it was, how it was yeah. a hell to was, implement that. It was pretty hard, <laughs> <laughs> but, and, but it was it was fun. I mean, we and and fun, fun, funny enough, one of the constraints we had was that we weren't going to move the camera. And then about, I want to say we were three quarters away through development at least, and we figured out we could move the camera, and so we started moving the camera. And I, I wish we had done that sooner because we could have. We would have had a lot fewer cuts from one scene to the next. We'd have a lot more pans. And those were that's when it really just sort of blows your mind. Um, you think about, got to remember, uh, I don't remember which Monkey Island it was, but if you go back and look at the Monkey Island that was released that same year, that was state-of-the-art graphics at the time when Blade Runner came out. It, like we, we didn't just bypass everybody else. We just, we did something alien to everybody else in the industry. Yep. Like nobody, nothing looked like Blade Runner at the time, just nothing. And when I look at it, it looks so like, especially the dynamic lighting. It looks so natural, and I feel like yeah. if it wasn't, it, it, if it wouldn't have been there, it just would have felt off, and you would have <laughs> probably gotten got, gotten criticism for that, well, which is so weird. Yes, sad, sadly, um, sadly, the guys who rep, who who um, remastered Blade Runner, they did a couple of things that that ended up being, I think, mistakes. The first is they softened a lot of the video to try to take away the graininess, um, but then what happens is the characters don't fit anymore. They feel very blocky and chunky. They don't fit with it the, because they were they were designed to look like the, the compression artifacts. So they were they were acceptable. Yep. Now they're no longer acceptable. And then I don't know why, but um a lot of the volumetric lights and things like that that we had done, uh they didn't they didn't implement them. So the character when they walk deep into the space and they go through volumetric fog or they go through um the kind of god rays and everything, they just don't have any effect. And so it just it sort of ruins the illusion. To your point, it's not that what they did wasn't better. I mean, objectively, their characters were better, their environments were better, but collectively, it just didn't work because they the pieces didn't fit as well. This this whole thing that if you if if it's not perfect, it will automatically be noticed and thus criticized. Is is this kind of a curse that you have encountered? Yeah, the uncanny. Uncanny Valley is you know, the term that we typically use for the thing that's not quite good enough to be believable, but too good to be kind of um, stylized. And so many games for years have decided to go with illustrated style designs and characters because um, it just prevents you from having to go for, for photorealism. Um, and even to this day, I love a game like Starfield. It's great, but I can't say the characters are believable. They're they're not. I mean, they're, they're very good, you know, um, but, but are they as believable as a metahuman running on a demo? No, they're not that good. Yeah. But there's also thousands of them, so okay, you know. <laughs> um, but uh, but you're talking about something that happens in design too. It doesn't just happen in video and visuals. For designs as well, if you make uh, design systems that are a little too perfect, if they don't have a bit of randomness to it, human beings tend to rebel rebel against them. And I, I was um, I, part of my career, I worked with a casino gaming supply, and one of the things that makes great slot machines and people will poo-poo slot machines all day long, but think about it from a game design point of view, you've got a single button and you've got to make a compelling experience that somebody's willing to spend money on. And it's, <laughs> and it's not just the chance of winning. That is not it. It's clearly there is something magical about games like Buffalo. And what it comes down to is the right pacing and the right escalation and the right rewards to, to generate those 
dopamine receptors. And um, it's very, very hard to do. And the reality is if you make something too perfect in game systems, if it doesn't have some oscillation, people don't like it. Um, classic game design mistake that I, I used to teach this in my class is you don't ever make a game that just continually gets harder on a steady ramp. People will disengage very rapidly. Human beings will see that coming. And if they don't get a break, it doesn't get easier every now and then. If they don't feel rewarded for their effort, they're going to disengage and they'll, they'll quit. It doesn't matter whether it's free or not. They'll just quit. So, so it's not just visuals. The Uncanny Valley exists in lots of places where their uh, human beings are incredibly good um, information processors. And you have to be thinking about this kind of stuff as you're designing games all the time. Thanks for that insight. It was really nice. Yeah, that's um, really fascinating. Yeah. You, you build in imperfections. Uh, <laughs> there was a, a, uh, an author, um, Douglas Adams. Douglas yeah. Adams in one of his essays talks about the fact that you you don't write perfect stories. You you introduce he introduces flaws in his stories because without that, there isn't the 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 kind of thing that feels like the real world because we're we're always sort of surprised. He had a very clever way of saying it, but um, but it's it's that idea that I ca capture with me all the time, which is you you kind of need to introduce some flaws or at the very least um, various levels of harmonics in your in your oscillation so that human beings have these these patterns that they can try to grapple with. Um, I was the uh, GM for Mafia Wars for some time, and we had a formula, and it was deterministic. And people were constantly playing. The game was basically to try to un to to use your brain to try to figure out what that formula was doing. It was complicated, but it wasn't that complicated. And as long as the formula was unknown, which it was, uh, there was people that were willing to fight each other all day long, trying to figure out how they're going to optimize against a formula. They don't they don't know what it is, but they can tell that it's deterministic, it's not random. You can feel the difference between random and non-random really quickly. There's something else about the Command & Conquer games that's just really impressive um, that we might want to talk about. And people have, like if I ask a few of our listeners to what they would like to know about the Command & Conquer games. Happy and, to answer if I can. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I, um, I think it's probably something you had to work with a lot is the pathing of the units because Command & Conquer yeah. games have unlimited units, right? You can yeah. build as Massive many as units. you want to. And they all have to work across the map and figure out how to go there without running, uh, yeah. like finding the most optimal path at least, right? Yeah, how that's does, the... how, how did you figure <laughs> that out? Um, I gave a whole uh, presentation on this on a GDC vault, so you could go find it. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but but it wasn't my algorithm that did that. It was a uh, it was Joe Bostics. Um, it's also briefly mentioned in the. Uh, command and conquer retrospective on this gdc vault as well but yep. basically um a series of things so the first thing that that um joe bostic did is is uh that kind of this is a classic game design just a stroke of brilliance is things look smart when they don't do something stupid right and yep. so um every single unit would try to do uh, use an a star there was buffered a star and all the stuff you'd expect um and if it if it if it came up with something that was just kind of illogical it would just prefer not to move, right? If things were just so messy that it couldn't figure it out, it would just not move. And then the stuff that were the units were trying to get over the over the over the um, the bridge and stuff. When like they that, wiggle around, yeah, they would literally yeah. they would it would just literally randomly wiggle it a little bit to see if it got. But better. it's just random. Oh, nice! It's just random. <laughs> just wiggle this one, wiggle wow. that one. Oh, hey, it can get through. All right. <laughs> so we literally randomly wiggled it, and then the third one was there was a, a bunch of work that uh, Joe did on. Um, trying to make two-wheeled vehicles. And to this day, you'll find strategy games just don't handle two-wheeled vehicles properly. They don't, like, they don't back up and turn and do the things you would do in a regular two-wheel vehicle or four-wheel vehicle, sorry, four-wheel vehicle. Um, they they don't, they they don't 
they don't behave like a real four-wheel vehicle because they won't pull backwards and pull forward. So what Joe did was he said, the A-star said, I'm going to try to get to this direction. And he literally just hard-coded all the possibilities of how you might move a car to get into those things and just built a giant table for it and just said, done with it because there was just no way to calculate it all. Um, so yeah, there's a, a bunch of those things. And uh, we didn't do the trick of just moving units through each other. If we There's a certain amount of buffer that you can go through, but we don't let them just go right over the top of each other either. So it definitely feels really good. And you can literally just put, I mean, you can throw, it'll eventually chug the CPU back yeah. in the day. Nowadays, not a chance. I mean, <laughs> there's no way you would yeah. bog down a CPU with the calculations we were doing, but but it's all built on that stuff. So it was um, really just Joe being a really clever programmer and, and optimizing. See, this is the thing that I go back to. Why our command and conquer compression algorithm worked was the same thing. We started with a baseline compression. We were so happy it worked. We said, okay, it works. And here's some test video that we've done. And we said, okay, but there's just a couple caveats. You can't use, um, you can't use any, uh, oh, no, sorry. Don't move too many pixels on the screen at once because it's based on uh, deltas. So, yeah. you know, don't, if you're going to move things, you know, it's okay to move left or right or up and down, but don't like things. And of course, the first thing the, the artists do is they fly the camera into the scene, you know, virtually changing everything. So, <laughs> so it's like, okay, well, this is all working. So now the next thing, look, just please don't use random noise, right? And then the artists give us back a static screen <laughs> as the start of the game. It's all static. It's a lot of random noise. Like, okay, right. <laughs> so, so, but the way we tackled each one of these things. So what we did with the static noise was we said, okay, we're pre-analyzing all these frames. If the amount of data that changes from frame to frame is approaching data, basically data entropy is, is truly approaching, approaching random, yep. just replace that block with static. And so it didn't even try to encrypt it. It just said, you know what? This is obviously just static and did its own static, right? And then, then that we got that working and people were so happy and everything. And it's like, okay, then we noticed they did fades and fades were really painful because every pixel on the screen is changing color or changing intensity. And it's like, you know, you shake your head, you go, oh my God, you're literally killing us, right? So we can't, <laughs> we can't use the static trick for that one. But what we could do is analyze and say, oh, fades are done over a three second or one second fade, whatever it was they were using. So we'll just look at the frames and say, does this look like a one second frame? As long as the the recreation of that analysis of those frames was close enough to the original, we go, that's clearly a fade. We'll just turn it into a fade and do it algorithmically. And so that was just that compressed down to nothing, right? Super fast. Then of course, the first thing they did after that was they started changing the timing of the fades. So um, they went they went from one second to two seconds, one and a half, three, whatever. And of course, always artistically, it's like, well, it has to be three seconds. So then we started analyzing the different things. We made it work for all the different sizes. Then they said, then we said, okay, we've got a gun. And then all of a sudden somebody does a fade, it's broken again. I'm like, what the hell? Well, it turns out they put an attack and decay volume on it. So they non-linearly raised and lowered the decay. Nice. So yeah, we figured cool. that out, right? So <laughs> it's like it's like one at a time, at a time, at a time. We were just constantly um, trying to, you know, kind of adapt the compression algorithm around what it was that it was that that we were trying to do with the video, and that's why we could beat things like Bink and other things like that because it was literally a bespoke algorithm designed specifically to play CNC movies. Um, so that's that's where you win, and that's where time and time again we've made the right trade-offs. I think which is you. You decide not to go with a commercial solution because the custom solution is just going to be better. Yeah, but this all a lot—it sounds a lot of like a lot of computer science. So it is. <laughs> um, yeah, it is. And I, I often wondered, like, is where the boundary is? Like, is there is there another life where um, you and your colleagues would have probably also been great computer scientists working in a university, figuring well, I mean, out? Yeah, I mean, 
I, I studied computer science. That's what I did in college, computer science yeah. and fine arts, right? Um, and most of our most of the people that solve these problems are scientists, computer scientists with engineering degrees. So yeah, they were computer scientists. They probably were never cut out to be the guys that were going to figure out the next um, Salesforce algorithm, right? But they probably were the guys that were going to work at MIT or um, you know aero to aerospace or NASA or places like that where creativity is rewarded. You 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 can't exactly cheat, but you have to be pretty creative in your solutions. You can't just go everything by the book. Um, I think games is almost a unique space where, where you know, the games and movies, CGI and movies, where um, if you can be really clever, you're rewarded as an engineer versus just being really good and running it by the books. So yep. um, yeah, but but it's absolutely, these are all it's computer science engineering problems. It's not, but they're not, it's interesting because programmers are generally bad at creating problems. They're really good at solving them, right? And artists are really good at creating problems, and they're pretty bad at solving them. <laughs> so when you marry those That's two fair. things together, you end up artists creating these really wonderful, beautiful problems for um, engineers to solve. Um, and I think design is the same way. Designers are great at creating problems that are extremely difficult to solve from an engineering point of view. Um, and engineers love that. And the right engineers love that kind of thing. So it's a kind of a complementary relationship. Yeah. Ray Mars Saga, 1985 game is when we started it, probably finished in 86 or 87. Um, I was I was the game director, but I was also an engineer. And so as a game director, I was an RPG. I wanted you to be able to move around on a, on a world map that was 256 by 256 um, uh, grid, which is a huge grid. Um, and you'd be able to move around. And whenever you got into a fight, you'd be able to go look at that space. And it was going to mimic the 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 surface of mars right so so i had you know, map a planet on a on a one gigahertz or one megahertz, or one megahertz um a, a computer with 64k of ram right i mean literally this is like a mathematically an impossible thing to do yep. so but we did it right the game does it it does it with a lot of simple tricks and and a lot of patterns and things like that but it you can go to Vallis marineris you can go to olympic mons if they're there and they're represented in a way that's that's reasonable and fair within the game universe it has that's impressive. So, yeah, it's just, um, and my son always talks to me about this. He's a different kind of uh, uh, James. He's a different kind of designer because he always designs within the constraints of um, what he's willing to do as a single. So he likes to be a solo dev. So he designs away from problems. He's like, well, that would be a problem. So I'm not going to do it. <laughs> like, so, yeah. so, and I'm like, that's a very valid approach, right? And because of that, he's able to finish games on his own and, and get his vision uh, elected. Like one of the games he's working on right now would be because of the way he did it, almost impossible to um, to do language uh, uh, to do uh, uh, language versions, right? Um, translations. And but he made a conscious decision. I, I've got to applaud him. In the very beginning, he said, "Well, this game, because of its nature, desires a mad lib kind of construction of sentences, which works in English because it's kind of sloppy and you can get away with it. Yep. But a lot of languages you just can't do that. And so there's another way to do it, which is to have all the permutations." Um, you know, kind of in a big data table and pull the right one, in which case you could then translate it. But for me as a solo dev, that's thousands of entries and I don't want to manage that. So he makes the conscious decision not to. So, you know, these are the, these are the things that great game designers, and, and I do think James is a great game designer, but I think great game designers make these decisions all the time. They decide to do or not to do a thing and they understand because they have enough of an engineering background, hopefully, to understand what they're signing up themselves and the team up for. And they understand whether or not it's um, insane, which which is good. Let's do the insane or impossible. And um, believe me, 
there are many designers who go out there and design impossible things. And I've gone to projects and I'm like, nobody's doing the math on this. This is just not possible. You're not, you can't achieve this level of quality with this many assets, with this many people in this amount of time. The math doesn't work. And it doesn't work by many orders of magnitude. You're 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 not being realistic. So there's this definition definite thing that you have to you have to kind of constantly juggle. With this um kind of perspective that you have now, um, and also speaking of being a young developer, um, which is a good segue into my next question. Like if you could travel back in time <laughs> and meet and like go into century 23 and meet yourself, uh Would you what what would you say to yourself? Well, Just to that. I was I was about to take the compliment as a young developer, right on. <laughs> <laughs> as a young as a young developer, oh, like you you as a young developer, if you yes. me as, me as a young developer, even <laughs> as a as a as a uh, early in career uh, developer, because <laughs> uh, I was also very young. But as an early in career developer, um, gosh, I, I mean it's it's tough, you know. I think. I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to tell myself not to, not to shoot for the stars, right? That I mean, would be a terrible thing to do. I'd we kill also the passion. Red alert that meddling in time is really. You know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Could be that problematic. Could, yeah. You know what's so funny about that? I'm just going to take a bit of a side. People always yeah. talk about the fact they wouldn't want to go back in time to change one small thing because it could change everything. But how come they don't apply that to today? How come they don't like think about that? Think about this and say, what about the little thing I'm doing right now? How much of an impact does that have on the future? Right? Okay. So, mm. but anyways, you um, always do it in one direction, not yeah, right. apply yeah, it to yeah. this moment. Yeah, because it's because we don't want to be told that we should make good decisions instead of bad ones. Right? Yeah. You always um, feel like I, you have no impact, I, but if I, anything I, can have would, a huge impact, yeah, yeah it could. Yeah. I, I would actually tell my a young self, um, you know, uh, follow your passion believe in people, trust, but verify. If there's one piece of advice I would say that I could have saved myself some anguish is to say, um, make sure to do that verify part. Because I've been very trusting and I've put a lot of uh, faith in things. I'm very optimistic anyways, by nature. Uh, I'm also pretty good at analysis. And so I can do the analytics, but I often don't want to do the analysis because I know what I'm going to come up with. And I think that would be the <laughs> advice is, hey, definitely follow your heart, do the things you love to do. But you know that analysis part, Do it a little sooner. Be a little bit more rigorous. You probably will make, make there'll be a few big mistakes I would have missed, and so that would have been better. But but by and large, um, I had this conversation with a friend of mine recently. There's not a lot I would change in my life, um, which I think has got to be the most blessed thing you could ever say is yeah. to say I I can't, there's like the, my relationships, the people I've I've been with. I mean the 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 the, the work that I mean I'm very happily married. I'll be 33 years this this year. 30. Five years this year, sorry, 35. Um, you know, there's just things I wouldn't I wouldn't change those. There's they the outcomes were just such a glorious life and it's been so great that I wouldn't I wouldn't want to take the chance of trying something else. Um and I'm certainly not stuck in my ways. I'm always trying a new adventure. Maybe maybe that's part of why I can say that is because I've never really not tried something. I've always taken the chance, I've always taken the risk. Um, one last gaming question. Um It's considering the evolution of the gaming industry over the years. What are your th thoughts on its future um, trajectory? Is there like particular trends that you see right now or developments that you are excited yeah. for? So optimistically, uh, we'll talk about the things I think are going to be great. I think you're going to see a steady, a steady directional growth of um, communities being more involved in the production and the care and feeding of live environments and live services. I think live services are here to stay. I think that's going to be a really positive trend and it's going to continue to be a positive trend uh, because I feel like um, 
it's the only industry where the um, the inmates get to run the asylum. And if you give the community the ability to to make things great, you'll get games like Red Alert. You'll get things that just evolve that are beautiful um, in ways that I think that this all comes back to user-generated content, tools for community, all this stuff. I think those are going to be a trend that's going to continue to grow and continue to be fabulous and create wonderful things. And I don't think it's going to invalidate game designers and artists. I think it's going to do exactly the opposite. I think it's going to make the jobs of game designers and artists for for helping to make that possible um, even more important. I think the industry is going to be heavily impacted by AI. I don't think it's going to be the doom and gloom. I think it's going to be an incredible accelerator <clears throat> to allow for much faster um, exploration of ideas and centering it on something that makes something unique. I don't think it can replace human beings for the way that um, the way that we find things entertaining for the many of the reasons I've already given in this yep. podcast. So it's just, yep. I don't think it don't think it can replace humans, and I don't think it ever will. Um, even if it passes the Turing test, which is getting pretty damn close to, it's still not going to produce a sustainable, long term, entertaining experience. Um, it might be just fine for you know dealing out my issue, dealing with my issues with the power company, and that's fine. You know, um, I think those are very positive trends. I do believe that a portion of our industry will be VR, XR. And I believe a portion of our industry will be um, heavily into um, pay to play, or sorry, uh, play to pay, play to pay, or play to earn. Play to earn is the right way to say it. Um, we went from pay to play to free to play. I think the next evolution to some part of our industry will be um, play to earn. Uh, it's it's in with all that other things I'm talking about with all the community involvement and community content and everything else. There will be ways for community to make money off of the things they build into the products yep. that we build. And that that's going to be a positive thing. It may be Web3, it may not be Web3, but I think it's a trend that's just an inescapable trend of the economics of the business, the same way free-to-play is an inescapable trend. Um, I don't think all games will be free-to-play. I'm not saying that. Um, I think that most of the biggest rewards financially will be games that are free-to-play or um, play-to-earn. So I think those are all the kind of positive things that are going to happen. I think the, the negative things that are going to happen is um, with that increased productivity and that increased engagement, um, the, the world's going to continue to polarize to more and more hits-driven business, which will mean the, the tops of the charts will be dominated by sequels and um, and franchises and things like that that people are comfortable with. But I, but I strongly believe that there will always be room for at least a couple every year that break out, probably built by people that already built the ones that were usually successful, and that those games um, will be the places where we see innovation and they'll become the new franchises. And so I don't want to discourage anybody from trying to be uh, to be that person. But if you think you're going to create a AAA game that's going to compete with Valorant and you know in your in your basement with five guys, you're, that's really not going to happen. I wouldn't I wouldn't bank on that. Uh, it doesn't mean you shouldn't try, but uh, but don't bank on that. So I think that the downside to this is that there's going to continue to be just a glut of um, near misses. The rewards for being a hit are going to be so big that lots of people are going to continue to spend money on it. And you said something earlier about the games industry is a very risky business. It is true. Um, if you look at the games business as a whole and you did the math of how much dollars are invested versus how much are returned, it's a terrible business and nobody would want to be in that business. But if you look at the best companies in the industry, they do a very nice business and they do it because they have figured out how to mitigate those losses and make sure that they know their process gets to better products more frequently. And they know how to make that that those big products more successful. So they've figured out a way and then I think there's always room for that runaway hit that had a modest amount of investment relative to the returns that actually crushes it because of some interesting innovation that moves the industry forward and gets everybody talking about it. But whereas you can always do another, 
let's say you have another product that's, I'm not going to pick on Call of Duty, but you have another game that comes out. It's a new shooter. It's as big as Call of Duty was the first time it came out. You can sequel that sucker five times in a row and nobody's going to care. <laughs> They're going to keep buying it because it's so good. Um, and you probably don't need to innovate. You should for lots of reasons, but you don't probably don't need to. You'll they'll decline. You won't be able to grow your audience unless you innovate, but, but you'll be able to make money. If your first one's a hit, you'll be able to squeeze that lemon multiple times. But if you really expect to break out, you're not going to do Call of Duty. You're not going to do a game like that. You're not going to do a game just like another game. If you do that, you're you're just going to be an also ran almost right out of the bat. You have to have something. If you're gonna if you're not a sequel, you're not a franchise. You got to have something that's going to get you recognized. It's got to be an innovation, and that innovation can't be relevant just to your game. It's got to be something that moves the industry forward, in my opinion. Um, so that does mean that there's going to be more and more indies out there. Game engines are going to keep getting better. AI is going to help people get competent looking games. There's going to be more and more asset flips out there. Um, people will vote with their dollars and their feet. So it's going to continue to be glutted. I think that's the downside is that it's going to be harder to get noticed and harder to get through the, the, the maze to become the successful leaders. Um, but there'll be a lot more jobs in the industry. You know, it'll continue to pay well. And more people will be working on the big hits. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I don't think so either. Thank you for this. Um, yeah. While doing research on you, one thing I've noticed is that you are pretty enthusiastic about engaging with the fan community. Oh, yeah. And, Always have been. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and thank and, you for that. Oh, thank, no. thank you. Thank you for this. And that's pretty yeah, good. Hey, Without customers, you don't have a business, right? <laughs> but but more, I, it's so, so I, I always say that kind of cheekily, but but I've always been just, I mean, honestly, it's just it's sort of thrilling and surprising that I was able to create something that lots of people liked, and it's just uh, as an artist in general, it's just so thrilling to have random people go, "You made, oh my god, thanks for that. That was a great part of my childhood. I loved doing it." Or you know that I pulled my hair out in college on that game, you know, or yeah. you're the reason I you're the reason I didn't get into Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> or whatever it is, you know, there may be backhanded yeah. compliment there somewhere, but but yeah, it is, alert raised me. Yeah, but it is, but it is, but it is uh, it's just such a thrill. And um, I guess not everybody gets that kind of thrill. You know, people I've been asked before, what do you think about rewards and you know, recognition, all that? It's kind of a weird thing. Like I've got cabinets full of them, and you know, there's a few that are really important to me, but the awards, the award is less important to me than it was. It's just a reminder to me of the experience I went through and how relevant it was to the industry or to people's lives. And, you know, when you get those kind of accolades, um, I mean, Jeff Keeley was the one who gave us the game award for um, industry icons to myself and Brett. And it, and I had never put it together. He came to us and he said, well, I'm going to give you an industry icon award. And I said, of course, we'd accept it. That's amazing. Thank you. And I said, I, but don't take this the wrong way. But why? Why now? I mean, we're in the ninth, we're in the 2018, 19, whatever it was. Um, might have been a little bit earlier than that, but uh, and he said, he said, well, I started thinking about these genres and MOBAs and um, uh, RTS games, and I realized that it came to him as an epiphany that none of this would have existed if it wasn't for yeah. those crazy guys at Westwood created Dune 2, because at the time it was a wholly illogical thing to do, was to make a strategy game that would make people have to think and and play at the same time, and maybe it would have come about someday. Um, But without that, it may have never happened. And so all of these all of these children of this original branch owe themselves back to one common lineage. I mean, and frankly, the first person shooter business, 
owes its entire history probably to Castle Wolfenstein, right? I mean, yep. um, mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if there was another one before that, but uh, maybe I'm doing somebody a disservice, but I don't think so. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll gladly do an episode on it in like probably a year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so it was. So it was really funny though. You look back at these things and you say, "Well, thank God for John Romero." You know, I mean, it was uh, and uh, and yeah. of course um, the others who edited um, Carmack. I mean, without Carmack and. Romero and others. Maybe it was really more Carmack than, than than Romero at that point. But Carmack, I mean, without him, who knows what the industry would look like? You know, um, without Sweeney, what? Who knows what what uh, game development would look like right now? I mean, he validated the idea of middleware as an engine. I mean, that's changed everything. So, um, you know, there's these. You look back at the folks, and I think to me, it's super exciting that we had impact on people's lives, and that's what's thrilling to me, and that's why I love the fan community. So it's more than just fans. I just love the fact that. I was able to bring somebody some joy and maybe inspire them to do something they love to do as a career. That's that's always a great feeling. It was truly a pleasure to to talk to someone that was part of something so impactful. Um, My one last, to be here. <laughs> one, one last thing that you could you could do for us is: is there anything that you would like to share that's going on in your life that you would like to share that you would like to plug? Um, I'm not, no, I'm not going to plug anything. I don't, I've, I've long long ago not uh, pitched from the stage, as it were. But I'm working. On, <laughs> I, 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 I am working on. I am working on another game, but um, I'm just part of a team, and someday we'll come out with that, and that'll be fine. But I think that the the insight I would have is uh, the thing I would leave you with is um, my, when I got my first uh, Lifetime Achievement Award, my speech was short and sweet. I said something to the effect of, "Well, thank you very much. It's a great honor, but I'm not anywhere near done yet." And uh, <laughs> I said the same thing on the second one. And uh, honestly, I'm not looking for a third Lifetime Achievement Award, but I am not anywhere near done yet. I'm going to keep doing this for a long time, I hope. And uh, and hopefully okay. I'll do it with some of the people that are listening to this podcast and we'll get a chance to meet each other and work together or, or at the very least, you'll get a chance to play something that I had something to do with creating. We are absolutely looking forward to it. Thank you yeah, so thank much. Thank you so much. Yeah, this right. was incredible. Really right, appreciate you your care. time. Oh, it was my pleasure, honestly. You take care, guys. Thank you. stop recording cut that out andre <laughs> cut it out yourself Tyler. Yeah, you cut it cut, cut that out andre you do it